So hello everyone, um, I'm Ben Backwell, I'm the CEO of GWEC. Hi Stu, good to uh, hear from you. Thank you very much Ben. Yes, my name's Stuart Mullen. I head up public affairs and institutional relations for the OEM MHI Vestas Offshore Wind, a turbine manufacturer dedicated to offshore. And so it's a, a great pleasure to be with you all today. Yeah, so let's, let's, uh, let's get this straight. So you're a, uh, an Australian living in Denmark and working globally in offshore wind, is that right? That's exactly right. I've been in Denmark for the past 20 odd years and I've been working in the industry for the wind industry for the last 12. I guess the last eight years of my life have been pretty much dedicated to the offshore wind industry. Uh, initially in my, in my role in Siemens and then moving over to MHI Vestas when that company started back in 2014. And what about yourself? You've been in the industry for a long time and you've also, even before the joining wind, you had a history in energy, yeah? Yes, I've, I've seen the, uh, you know, the, the good side and the bad side of the energy um, uh, industry. And I, I was actually um, worked for a long time as a correspondent covering uh, mainly oil and gas, but energy in general and energy, energy policy. Um, and I, for my sins, I was a correspondent covering OPEC, the oil producers uh, organization for a while, which was really interesting. And to be honest, was one of the things that got me into uh, renewables about 10 or 12 years ago, because I'd, I'd lived in a bunch of countries where, They'd had big oil industries, and uh, I could I'd sort of seen the light of uh, trying to change things and um, uh, trying to go green, really. So that was it was a big uh, inspiration for me. But it's it's also been um, something that continues to be useful, um, having some knowledge about other energy sources and industries and how they work. But um, when when did you first see a wind turbine in Denmark? Then, <laughs> well, actually, it was on my first day of arriving here. I'd never actually seen a wind turbine well i think apart from teletubbies uh tv the tv program teletubbies there was not many wind turbines in australia back in the day when i left uh, of course it's a lot different now but there was no sort of like turbines dotted along the landscape but when i first the first place that i stayed here it was a i stayed uh, at a little place called saxel strand which is 20 kilometers south of Aarhus, and i was at a summer house right on the beach and Across the across the water, about you know maybe I don't know a kilometre or so across the water, the Tuno Knob uh, wind park was there. That was established in 1995, and it was actually MHI Vestas's first uh, foray into offshore wind. But that's a beside the point. And uh, I thought it was amazing, like seeing these turbines in the water and generating uh, power at that stage to the island of Tuno and Samsu. It was just uh, amazing, and it really blew my mind. And I thought, wow, this country is so advanced in the renewables area. I mean, you know, Australia was very much reliant on coal, and we've been trying to get out of that for such a long time. And you know, here is, was a country, a small country in Denmark, really making great gains. And I didn't realise how much of a history that Denmark had in relation to renewables. And you know, seeing that, I think, was actually uh, inspiration for me to actually want to get involved in the renewable area and work with wind turbines. Uh, and I tried for a long time before finally succeeding to get into wind to actually yeah, be part of the wind industry. Yeah, a lot of people I meet, like like you, are, are people who kind of specifically wanted to get into the industry and and were excited by it. And I think that's still you know the case uh, you know today. I mean, I, I think I think it's something that people you know feel feel passionate about. Um, and it, it you know it gets you up in uh, in the morning. What about um, um offshore wind uh, specifically? I mean, what's it like when you go around the world talking to people about it? How to you know what kind of reception do you get? 
Well, it depends on where you go, uh, of course. I think that, you know, like what we're seeing now is that there's greater interest. You know, the SDG goals from um, the United Nations, I think, set focus on, you know, renewable energy. They set focus on uh, the oceans and making the most out of the oceans. Um, and so I think that there's political influence there, um, like from a sustainable perspective. I think that there's also a lot of... Uh, um, countries or a lot of nations that see offshore wind as actually like a vital component in their green energy transition. And I think that um, for me, when I go around the world speaking to people about offshore wind, it's very rare that you that you meet sort of like opponents in a, in a conceptual level. Of course, you know, there's always, you know, challenges in every market, but the idea that people actually wanting to do renewables is actually something that most people can agree on. So I think that there's a, you know, there's a, uh, a silent majority sometimes that actually really want this to happen. Um, and then there's a, a smaller group of people actually trying to make this happen. And then, you know, of course, there's some opposition from this as well. But you know, all, all infrastructure projects face opposition. That's the challenge and joy of that. But what about yourself as a CEO of GWIC? I mean, you're kind of paving the way for the industry. How's, how are you? your talks with governments? Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing some real excitement. And um, I mean, there's been a bunch of countries that, you know, obviously have been trying to do offshore wind or have been doing offshore wind for a while. But what I'm really enjoying about the job at the moment is kind of stranger kind of places that you wouldn't imagine starting to get into it. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, last year, uh, we organised, along with the World Bank, a study tour of the UK and a kind of series of kind of seminars and things. And we had, I think, 13 delegations and uh, really, really interesting. I mean, people like India and Vietnam who are really kind of looking very, very seriously, but also people like, like Costa Rica were there and, uh, you know, Argentina um, and, you know, as, as well as places like Sri Lanka and Turkey. Um, but, you know, really interesting places and places in many um, in many cases that have very good onshore wind and you kind of start you're thinking well why would you want to do offshore wind but they're pretty you know they're pretty clear about it pretty excited they could see it as a kind of specific area that will give them you know certain benefits um, uh, they're very interested in the kind of industrial benefits of offshore wind they look at the resource they have and they kind of start to think about it in, in energy terms and what that can mean for their country um, and that's yeah. really interesting and that wasn't even there a couple of years ago and then this year, I mean, just to fast forward, I mean, a bunch of those countries then came back to us and the World Bank and asked us to develop, you know, uh, roadmaps and, and for further assistance or to organise follow-up uh, activities. And then this year, we've got a whole bunch of new countries um, which are engaged as well. And I mean, I'm talking about places like Azerbaijan and uh, Colombia and places like that. Um, um, and Brazil. And one, one thing that was really interesting, when we took people around the UK, uh, last year I mean it was just it was just really good to see people looking at these kind of huge pieces of kits and going around ports and talking to people and asking all these questions and um, yeah it feels yeah it really feels like we've got some um, yeah momentum we've captured people's imagination and I don't think it was like that even a couple of years ago yeah 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 exactly well also I think that the impacts of COVID uh, might have or might actually inadvertently help spur the industry on. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, there was a lot of green ambition before the COVID crisis, but I think that the rhetoric, at least from governments that we're hearing, after COVID, 
is even greater. I think that it seems that many nations are actually looking to double down on their green commitments and actually use the COVID crisis as maybe a reset to help them sort of transition quicker to a green or a sustainable energy mix rather than being reliant on fossil fuels, et cetera. Um, how, yeah. Are you seeing that as well? Or are you seeing, a, uh, how, what's your take on that? I think it's, um, well, I mean, I think big issue is wind, you know, is wind versus coal. And I think the coal um, generation uh, business has really come into focus for a lot of countries. I, I think there was a kind of business as usual, even a few years ago, for a lot of countries, particularly in, in Asia, um, and just kind of, it wasn't that they were massively enthusiastic about coal, because I don't think anybody is, but it was kind of like, you know, this is, this is what we've got. Um, and that's, that's really changed. I think, um, I was actually at an event yesterday, we'll, we'll talk about later, where I was, I was listening to the um, minister from India. Um, and, you know, he, he was just crystal clear, you know, there's no role uh, anymore. And uh, we need to somehow get ourselves off this off this thing. And we're hearing the same kind of recognition now in places like Vietnam and other places in Asia. Um, and I think that's going to be the big one because if you look at offshore wind, it's you know it's large scale, it's big chunks of power, and it's clean power, and uh, and it can directly compete now with coal on price. And and it's something that you know has you know will have a lasting kind of economic you know impact, and and will prevent these countries um, a from potentially becoming pariahs and becoming just these kind of like emission spewing kind of coal reliant countries. And also many places also from uh, becoming reliant on imports of coal, which, you know, is a whole problem in itself as well from national security point of view, from an infrastructure point of view. So I think for, for me, the really big thing is, can we go head to head with coal in the growth markets uh, in Asia and replace it completely with offshore wind? If we can do that, then we're, then we're like really in business. Yeah, it sounds fantastic, and I, I like it. Paints a very good visual image, and I think that again, the COVID stuff, particularly with air quality and things, we've noticed the difference of what a cut in emissions can uh, do and how that impacts. But I mean, still, even with those sort of breaks, we're still not seeing the uh, enough. Uh, even with those sort of forced breaks on us, we're still not seeing enough reduction to meet our targets anyway. But I, I mean, on that, I know that GWIC has been uh, or will take the Ocean Renewable Energy Action Coalition's report that was done earlier this year a little bit further now. I mean, in that report, they talked about having, you know, like there's uh, 1.4 terawatts of offshore wind by 2050. It can be a tenth of the global energy consumption and it can replace 3 billion tonnes of CO2. I mean, they're huge numbers. Uh, I mean, what's GWIC going to, how's GWIC going to sort of like progress or lobby for those findings? Yeah. Boy, do we have our work cut out for us, right, as an industry, because um, those are pretty big numbers, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's almost like we have kind of inflation on the numbers side, which is, yeah, which is great. Um, but, you know, how, do we, how are we going to do it now? And um, I think if you look at the assumptions, you know, I think something like out of that 1.4 terawatts or, you know, 1,400 gigawatts, something like 450 we're going to get from Europe. Um, and Europe's kind of a known quantity. You know, it's a, it's a mature market, and the ambition is kind of increasing again. Uh, so that's great, and I've got real confidence there. Um, then you get maybe no more than 100 gigawatts from the US over that period uh, to 2050, and then that leaves the rest of it coming from somewhere. 
And um, obviously a big chunk of that is going to be Asia and China in itself now, the single largest uh, national market. But a lot, lot, lot more needs to be done from Asia. And, and, and looking at where countries are kind of along the kind of cycle, they're only just getting started. I mean, we've got a few geographies like Taiwan that's moved very, very quickly. Well, really only, only Taiwan. Um, and then you've got others that are just kind of incipient, like uh, Vietnam, which has kind of huge, you know, huge uh, promise. You've got others like Japan, which have got this huge promise as well. Let's, you know, let's be honest about it, they've moved very, very slowly. It's only just starting to get going now. Yeah. Um, and then you've got places like the Philippines that have got huge power demand, uh, very kind of uh, dirty power matrix that's not suited to their geography at all. Um, yeah. And they've got fantastic wind resource, actually. But it's and, and near to the demand centers, but it's uh, deep water. So you're looking at some places where floating offshore wind is, is going to you know, need to, to happen uh, quite quickly as well. So, I mean, there's a mountain to climb. I, I think it can be done, but it's almost like retire, requires almost like a kind of wartime effort. It requires a lot of coordination, requires getting frameworks set up pretty quickly and in a very kind of logical way so you don't get delays uh, and, and things like that. So I think that's the work that, you know, you and I and many other people are going to have ahead of us for the next, uh, you know, 10 and 20 years. And it's, it's a great challenge. But, you know, like I said, there's, there's a mountain to climb. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what uh, role power to X or the hydrogen piece of puzzle looks about the, uh, how that impacts this ambition as well. I mean, we can see already in Germany, they're talking about adding another five gigawatts of uh, offshore wind to help them meet their hydrogen targets so again that let's see where this ends i mean you know the potential i think is there i think that we are going to see a world where it's the future is going to be a lot uh, more dedicated to offshore wind than what has been uh, we're going to see a lot more rollout a lot quicker than what we've seen in the past yeah i mean on that note i mean you know it's come a long way as an industry and i thought maybe it'd be good to go back a little bit and look at you know why why did it grow up in the first place? I mean, we've got plenty of onshore winds. You know, what, what's, what's the advantage of um, offshore wind and how did this thing get uh, started? I mean, you mentioned uh, Denmark, Stu, but what, what was the thinking and, and why, why is it working? Yeah, I reckon that one of the things was that there's greater wind resources at sea. I think that there's, that, you know, you can tap into sort of stronger, consistent wind speeds that become quite predictable. I think that at that stage that they were facing a lot of uh, NIMBY criticisms uh, in onshore and they were looking at, you know, like the onshore, the, the best onshore sites were filling up rapidly. And so where would you go? Where's the next untapped frontier? And you only needed to look out to sea to see, you know, every, everyone that's ever lived by a coast and, you know, you felt that sea breeze realises the strength of wind at sea. And I just think that it made a whole lot of sense. When we look at the early projects, when all this got started, nobody was ever really sure that this was going to be a success. It was chance that somebody took. I mean, Siemens installed Vinaboo in 1991, I believe, and they used onshore techniques at that stage. I remember Steesdale telling the crane operator. Yeah, this, uh, is, um, this is Henrik uh, Steesdale you're referring to. Um Stuart, right? yes, kind yes. Of visionary inventor good uh, friend of ours and um now chairing gwex uh, floating offshore task force yeah of course and uh 
again, hopefully he'll uh, join us in one of the later podcasts to talk about all of these innovations. But yes, when Henrik Steesdale actually you know, was talking about how to do the first project, one of the things is, you know, he said to the team, just treat this like uh, it's, a, it's an onshore installation. So instead of just imagine that where the blue is, that there's normally green. Uh, and so that's how they installed it. And I think that uh, Vestas did the same with Tuno Knob back in 95. And then you can see that, you know, over time when people actually saw that the benefits of this was going to actually result in some net gains and the projects got a little bit more, I guess, refined in the way that we actually installed uh, the turbines. The turbines themselves actually started to evolve and we were being built for the offshore environment. Um, and then in, the, in, the, in the early projects, I mean, the turbines were essentially the same size as the ones onshore, right? I mean, they, it wasn't to capture size at that point, right? It was just to capture better resource. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there was no distinction. You know, I think that, the, again, I can only talk from the MHI Vestas experience. Our, turb, our first lot of turbines we installed were 500 kilowatt turbines. So we installed 10 500 kilowatts, and that was what we were installing onshore at the time. And But then, you know, of course, I think that there was a departure from Siemens when they installed the 3.6 megawatt turbines only at shore. And I, I think their first uh, 3.6 turbines were installed at Avendur here in Denmark with Ørsted's site. Uh, and that was kind of like where offshore wind really took a next step up. And then, of course, there's been a whole lot of developments. And then, you know, our turbine with the uh, 8 megawatt, when we came onto the market, with that product, again, that was sort of like another step change where you can see that what we were installing onshore at that stage was still in the two to three megawatt class. Uh, and this was a real step change. And I think it was probably the first turbine that was actually designed to really optimize the, at least that it was designed for the North Sea conditions. Um, and that's kind of, you know, now become the workhorse of the industry. And those sort of, that sort of megawatt of turbines seems to be the, the standard now. And this has just become the reliable workhorse, both the Siemens offering and ours. And I think the industry's worked really hard to do that and be, been quite inventive about the ways we do that as well. What about, um, let's talk a bit about the market. Again, I mean, looking back on it, I mean, there was, there was a couple of kind of, kind of false dawns where everybody thought, wow, this thing's going to go massive. I mean, particularly, I remember in the UK, around UK round three, there was kind of this idea of like the UK becoming the Saudi Arabia of wind and how were, how are we possibly going to create enough industrial capacity to do all these projects? And then it, it seemed to be kind of, it didn't materialise in the way that people anticipated. Some of the companies that got in to offshore wind got out again. I mean, what, I've been trying to think back on it. When was the time where the industry really scales up and have the confidence to kind of see a proper market being there and and where was that was that was that the uk or was it uk plus germany plus denmark all at the same time i mean how, how did it kind of come about yeah well again this is i haven't sort of like spent a lot of time in anal analyzing this uh development but anecdotally from my time when i was back in 2012 when i was working for another company the offshore market that particular stage was one oem doing projects for one developer and yes they were projects primarily in the uk at that particular stage so the early industry, I think, that was quite diverse. And you saw sort of like there was projects in Germany, projects in the Netherlands and Belgium and Denmark, et cetera. Then uh, around about the time of the financial crisis, I think things sort of slowed down a lot and there wasn't as much happening in the industry. And also, you know, the grid 
challenges in Germany didn't definitely didn't help matters either. But then I think that I think that there's no coincidence that when MHI Vestas or you know when Vestas came strong back into the market and developers all of a sudden had a uh, a competition in the supply chain and OEMs that they could choose that they were able to start to look at getting other cost outs and getting sort of cost effective measures into their into their programs and I think that you know we saw Ersted at that stage Dong Energy you know they were the first people to use us on a project and that was in, in Walney um, and then I think that after that we started to see the costs come down and I still think that, you know, like projects like um, Horns Reef 3, which was just installed this year, I think that when that was tendered, that really drove a lot of competition. And then then the next thing to be tendered after that, from my recollection, was uh, Borsala. And then Borsala drove the competition even further. And then it just kept going and going and going after that. But I think that that sort of was where the market changed. Because if you look at our footprint, it was quite diverse in the very early days. You know, we had projects in Sweden, projects in Belgium, etc. And then those the market kind of shrunk and it really was just the UK a little bit in Germany and a little bit in Denmark, but even those countries sort of like paused a little bit and then it sort of came back in a big burst in the sort of, you know, I guess from 2015, 2016 onwards. And again, it's the the cost out and the price, I think has really piqued a lot of interest. For example, you know, the US, you know, the US was talking about Cape Wind. Well, before I joined the uh, wind industry, Cape Wind was something on the horizon. And now we're seeing like, you know, we've seen Block Island go there. We've seen that Siemens has uh, installed a couple of turbines at Dominion now. And so, you know, we feel like with the Boehm study, which uh, about the cumulative impacts of offshore wind, I think that we're starting to see the maturing of uh, the US market. We've seen the first lot of projects go in the water in Taiwan. Yeah, we're yeah. seeing other markets emerge as well. And so, you know, I think it's all, but that, I think those were really actually buoyed by the price factor that they're seeing out of Europe. And of course, the economic value that, that offshore wind's been delivering for these coastal communities around the world as well. Yeah, so I mean, reflecting, first of all, you know, having the North Sea or, you know, kind of Northern European area as a whole, um, I think was pretty important and important for yeah. companies like yourselves and that you could kind of, something going on in one of the markets um, all yeah. the time and you could kind of move around vessels and crew and supply chain, you know, through those projects. And yeah. that, I mean, just on, on an aside, I mean, that's one of my kind of great worries when you think about Asia is kind of what's the equivalent to the North Sea. I mean, if you look yeah. at you look at the South China Sea <laughs> it's, not, it's not a great comparison in terms of the uh, conditions for cooperation but we'll, we'll come back to that in another um, episode but the other thing is you know as you mentioned price and price breakthrough and the cost out as you referred to I mean just had a monumental effect on how this thing was seen um, by um, governments and you know from being this kind of expensive kind of luxury you kind of had in a kind of pot somewhere as something for the future it's now competing with all the mainstream energy sources that are on the grid and in many cases set to become the dominant source on the grid uh, as is the case in um, the uk for instance hey ben i just wanted to pick you up in relation to the what you said about the south china sea i think that that's one of the lessons that the rest of the world can take out of uh, the european development or the history of offshore wind in europe yeah, we, we talk about now the, the North Sea Alliance or the Baltic Alliance, and these are fantastic ways of like harmonising markets across a region. And if we can do that, 
across the regions around the world, I think that that's going to be fantastic because what we saw originally here in Europe is that there were boom and bust cycles in individual markets, you know, like we have political ambition. And again, you know, the thing about the offshore wind market is that the cycles are so long, they transcend you know, a government's term in office normally, you know, they can be longer than four-year cycles or eight-year cycles or whatever um, the terms of government is. And so you need, sometimes, you know, you have great political ambition, the next government in office uses, puts the brake on and we have boom and bust cycles. But when we can get an agreement across the region and we can sort of like harmonise and take a single market approach for a region, I think that we've seen the huge benefits and we don't end up in boom and bust cycles and I think that the whole supply chain then grows without actually having to lay people off or we don't see people moving away from our industry and, and into our industry again in sort of like this constant ebb and flow of, of a workforce within an industry as, as we sort of ramp up and ramp down uh, within markets. So if, if, if for whatever reason, Asia could you know, put aside the philosophical political differences and work together as a region and take these collaborative approaches, join things like these high-level panels for you know, ocean usage and collaborate and commit to these things on a global scale, then I think that, you know, the world's going to be in a better place and offshore wind is going to be well positioned to deliver on its promise. Yeah, cooperation's uh, important and it's important for commerce in general, right? And if you don't have that, everything gets more difficult. And I think we're seeing that with uh, COVID and many other things at the moment. But this it's really, really interesting. And baby steps and also not without its kind of political um, and policy implications as well. So let's definitely do that. So, um, yeah, as we start to wind up uh, today's edition of the podcast, um, let's go to what's in, what's in the news at the moment. And, uh, I mean, one thing I wanted to note, to note was um, the IEA summit. One thing that really, really stood out to me was the UK-based minister, Halok Sharma, uh, you know, spoke at the opening plenary, and it was kind of you know uh, his you know his kind of big opportunity to say something. He's also the president of COP, so you know next year's uh, COP climate talks as well. And pretty much all he talked about was offshore wind. It was really heartening. I mean, he talked about the huge ambition the UK has. He said this is a global success story, um, and he also name checked um, a bunch of uh, GWEP board members and, and offshore wind companies, your, your company included, uh, Stuart. Yeah, I heard that with great interest. I was quite pleased to actually hear us that for the work that we've done down the Solent, but also the whole industry contributing. And I think the point was, you know, all across the UK, there was, uh, you know, this, you've seen the benefits of the supply chain. Yeah, so that, I think, uh, that, that stood out for me, uh, Alok Sharma's um, intervention. I guess on the, on the downside, those are the only two people I can think of in the summit who um, who said very much about offshore wind. So um, yeah. clearly, uh, clearly more work to be done. What, what about you, Stu? What, what, what's been in the news for you this week? Well, actually, just following up, I actually sat in on that summit as well, just as a, as a spectator, and I was pretty almost not disheartened, but I mean, you, you, when you hear, I don't know how many speakers there were, but at least, you know, as you said, there was only a couple that actually mentioned uh, offshore wind in terms of like, you know, this energy transition. And there's still, I think we've still got a fair way to go. And that's good, you know, there's, uh, there's still room for improvement. But yeah, we want to see, I want to see like the guy from Indonesia, you know, next yeah. year, see the guy from Indonesia talking about offshore wind and see the guy from India and see the guy from... Oh, you know, South from... Africa realise they have like, you know, uh, around the Cape, how much wind resource they have down there. You know, let's see if they've got some uh, interest in offshore wind at some point as well. 
what, um, what, no, else is, what else go, what else is going on yeah right so i mean from our company perspective we're pretty bullish at the moment we just signed the sea green order which that became firm and unconditional which was our uh, a fantastic order up in Scotland. It becomes the biggest project up in Scotland. Uh, Going to deliver a huge amount of um, power to Scotland. We're really looking forward to doing that. Uh, we're also beginning to uh, really ramp up our presence in Taiwan. Uh, we had mentioned already that uh, with our blade factories, well, the Tian Li Blade Factory, who is doing our blades over there, has started construction. And we've engaged with, you know, I think there's like six or seven uh, other sub-suppliers out there at the moment that are going to be manufacturing for MHI Bestus in Taiwan. Um, so, you know, it, it, for those of people that don't know, Taiwan has some fairly strong local content requirements or they, you know, they're trying to really get some uh, return on investment for their local uh, economy. And uh, the projects that we have fall very much in that window where there's a lot of or high local content and so we're really pleased to actually be able to live up to our commitments and we hope that you know in the future the in, the uh, investments that we're putting in will actually really pay off but I also noted with great note that uh, that Ersted so signed this uh, huge corporate PPA uptake in Taiwan as well which was fantastic for the industry. Yes uh, very really very very interesting and I think yeah. Um, yeah if you look at somewhere like Japan there's been a whole, I mean, we, we work, you work, we work very closely with um, RE100, which represents um, a lot of the corporate buyers. And they've, even though the market is um, incipient in Japan, they've had literally dozens of big corporations applying to join them and, and uh, you know, stating their ambitions to go 100% renewables. And I think, you know, offshore wind for those companies is going to be a really, really good opportunity. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of these deals in the coming years. Yeah, well, let's hope so. Uh, but I reckon that kind of does it for today, doesn't it, don't you think? I think so. So um, good chatting with you. Um, for people listening in, um, you know, please send us your comments, thoughts, ideas, questions, what you'd like to see in uh, future podcasts. And uh, looking forward to um, sharing some time with you again soon. Thanks, mate. Look forward to it. Thank you very much for listening.